Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast, where today we're discussing the problem of evil and Ganesh, two topics that don't often get discussed together, but today you and I are going to break a little bit of new ground. And if you don't follow All Things All People on social media or have checked out my website recently, you have not seen the mission statement, which if you're going to listen to All Things All People, whether it be an interview show or one like today where you and I are really just kind of reflecting and thinking on a particular topic, you need to know that ultimately All Things All People exists to develop generations of Christian thinkers to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. And that one little phrase in there, generations of Christian thinkers, is super, super important. See, I believe that Christians need to be concerned not just with the world around them, but the worlds that will come after them. Uh, The worlds of our children and our grandchildren. And what is that world going to look like? What are those worlds going to look like? Well, they're going to need Christians, and they're going to need Christians who think. And we want to see generations of Christian uh, thinkers, Christians who stop and allow the Holy Spirit to see, let them see the world vastly different. Because here's the secret here at All Things All People. You don't have to be a famous Christian to be a Christian thinker. I know that I spend a lot of time interviewing well-known Christians, and boy, are some awesome ones coming up next week. I'll give you a little sneak peek. Next week is Andy Bannister, who is a world-renowned apologist, world-class Islamic scholar. Uh, it's going to be an amazing conversation that you don't want to miss. But you don't have to be Andy Bannister or Karen Swallow Pryor or Brian Broderson or any of these other Christians that you listen to this podcast to hear to be a Christian thinker. You can be a Christian thinker just by being a Christian who thinks and allows the Holy Spirit to renew their mind and change the way they think. And so that's why you and I are here. That's certainly why I'm here. Uh, And I hope that you are excited about the direction that All Things All People is going, that this podcast is going, and even for the show today. But first, uh, I want to invite you to get something for free and like really, really free. If you go to my Instagram, uh, you can go to the link in my bio to follow the sticker team link. And that link will be in the show notes as well. And sign up. Uh, for a free All Things All People podcast sticker. And I mean completely free. I'm going to pay the shipping and everything. All you got to do is you got to promise to put it somewhere cool. And if you feel like it, post about it on your Instagram or your Facebook and tag me in it so that I know that you're watching or you're listening. (laughs) Um, But also, make sure to follow All Things All People on Instagram. And if you are an Apple user, review on iTunes. And no matter what app you're using to listen to the show, share like all of those things, subscribe, depending on what app, but, but really I'm just excited to get into today's topic, which is, uh, one that I get asked about more than almost anything. And another that I wish I got asked about more (laughs) and you'll see, you'll see why. And so let's get on with the problem of evil and get One of the most common questions I get from Christians and non-Christians is something along the lines of, if God is loving, why does he allow evil? Or if God is loving, why do bad things happen to good people? Or if God exists, he is all good and all powerful. If he is so good, he would want to prevent evil. Therefore, since evil exists, 
it is unlikely that such a God exists. I'm sure that if you listen to this show, you follow me on social media, you're probably a little bit familiar with this type of question. And this type of question is essentially the basis of what Christian theologians and philosophers have called the problem of evil, which is essentially the notion that there exists a very real problem uh, in the belief in God when it comes to evil. And so I usually start off by saying Christians should not downplay this. Christians should not pretend as if this doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. It is a very real problem uh, on the surface for a God to exist, the, being the one that Christians describe, who say that they worship, who they say is all good. It would seem to follow, as these questions imply, that there would be nothing bad in the world, right? We're talking about a God who's just absolutely loving. He, he, he uh, you know, Paul wrote that he is love. He is absolutely the definition of love. So why is it that so many bad things happen in the world? Well, there's a lot of explanations. There's a lot of offerings in this discussion. And the one that I want to just familiarize you with today is Alvin Plantinga's free will defense. Uh, Plantinga's free will defense is, in my opinion, the best answer to this question, or at least the best beginning to an answer for this question. Um, Philosophers and apologists like William Lane Craig, the late Ravi Zacharias, and Frank Turek, um, who are all very popular, all have great explanations and answers themselves with their own little flair and caveats that I encourage you to check out. Um, But Alvin Plantinga's is, in my opinion, a great base to start from. And uh, I want to just walk you through it today and then kind of give it its own new interesting flair at the end. Um, Alvin Plantinga argues that it is definitely possible for evil and God to exist simultaneously. Um, the, The defense, the free will defense, begins by pointing out that while God is certainly omnipotent or all powerful, God cannot do what is impossible, meaning God cannot make a square with round corners or an unmarried bachelor. Uh, there's, there's a lot of these classic examples that you'll hear all the time. Uh, this is also an important notion to ascertain in regards to kind of the trivialized question of like, get, can God create a boulder so heavy that even he can't lift it? Therefore, kind of like a paradoxical uh, situation for God to be in. Well, see that that situation is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's actually impossible for, for anything or anyone. Um, and you know, so therefore God can't do it. You know, I mean, we don't like to say, especially Protestants, we don't like to say, uh, I'm sure I have a lot of Catholic listeners, so don't get offended at me assuming that you're a Protestant, but I found that many Protestants and, and especially evangelicals, um, struggle with that notion that God cannot do what is logically impossible. But let me stop and encourage you for just a minute. Um, he can't, <laughs> he can't. Um, and that's important. That's, it's actually good. Um, because that means that, that there are laws of logic to this world, to this universe. And, and that God even is bound to them. And as we are going to find out, it's, it's actually really important to ascertain that notion to begin to explain things like the problem of evil to doubters, to questioners, to seekers. Um, And so because God cannot do what is logically impossible, it would follow that God would not be able to prohibit free creatures, such as ourselves, from using our freedom 
to commit evil. Freedom, meaning that if I am sitting at my desk writing at this very moment, I could also get up and go for a walk if I so choose. There's not this determinist force making me right. If God were to prohibit or limit my choices down to one, continue writing, then I would not be a free creature. And so I know that for many of you, you don't believe in free will. This isn't so much about free will um, versus any form of Calvinism. This is, this is a logical free will that we're talking about today. But, but ultimately, if God created us free, then he can't limit our freedom. Um, it, it kind of goes back to God can't make uh, a, a circle square. He can't make a free creature that isn't actually free. Um, and, and that free choice for us as free creatures is going to be really important in this defense. Because ultimately, then the next question is, okay, so then why didn't God create this world differently? Why didn't he make it uh, to where there were less choices? Or specifically, why didn't he make it to where there is no evil to choose from? Or why didn't he only create the creatures that would choose good? Planningus suggests that ultimately free will leads to a greater good that would not be possible without the opportunity for choice. And yes, even the choice of evil, that a world without free creatures would be missing something of exponential value that this world of free creatures contains. So before we continue on, I want to make sure that you understand what planning it lays out in this defense is that uh, he says it's, it's perfectly acceptable that the initial question of how can evil exist and God exist, that it's not ridiculous um, to believe that that statement is true, that, that evil does exist and God still exists. Because as he says, God created humans with free will. And if he isn't limiting that free will, it would seem to follow then that some creatures would use their free will for evil. And then, right, we get to this, this question. Okay, well, if God's so good, and he, you know, abhors evil, which he does. Why didn't he just create the world with no free will? Or why didn't he just create the world with no evil to choose from? But we get to this super important notion of a greater good. And this is kind of the, the, the culmination of this defense. And this is something that if you're, if you're an atheist or a questioner, agnostic listening to this, I don't expect you just to take this and just go, oh my goodness, I never thought of this before. But what I want instead is for you to just listen and think, okay, if that's true, then what does that entail? Because this greater good, he says, could be the thing that makes it okay for there to be evil in this world. And I personally would suggest that this greater good is ultimately love. Because without free will, love would not exist. Think about that. You know, if, if something is forced to love, then it's actually not loving. You, you can't determinize love. You can't make someone love God. They have to choose to love God. And so in this world where free creatures can actually choose love as opposed to being automatrons, who neither love nor hate, um, or removing evil from the world and creating a world which is only good, then, well, then it's less good. 
I know that's shocking to us, but ultimately a world where there is no choice means that good is less good because it is not chosen in the face of the antithesis. And so if there is a much greater good that comes from this world of freedom and evil, then God is still omnipotent in that world and can be considered all good because he sees something we don't by allowing these difficult circumstances that we all live in. Perhaps he sees something on the horizon that we don't see. Perhaps he sees a greater good coming that we just can't anticipate. That's my belief. My belief is that despite as difficult as this world is, the world that is to come that followers of Jesus can anticipate is so much better than this world is bad that it means that God is not anything but all good. See, planning as free will defense is not as much of an answer as it is, in fact, a defense. Many apologists have many other answers that are perfectly appropriate, but I find that planning as defense is the best starting point for Christians. Because with this defense in mind, the answers that apologists give are not simply scripted chess moves, but instead passionate explanations that flow from an understanding of a God that ultimately cannot be completely understood. Because think about it, if God is who he says he is and who we say he is, it would be necessary then that there are things about him we do not and cannot understand. And so with planning as free will defense in mind, I want to just challenge you to just think over that, right? That's what this whole show is about is thinking. Think over that. What parts do you, you really hold on to and say, yeah, I can, I can really understand that and get behind that. What parts are you challenged by? What parts do you say? I'm not sure I buy that. Um, there, there's so many amazing resources out there to understand this, this defense, this argument, um, but ultimately, this is one that when I began to study philosophy and theology at, at a higher level, I really was encouraged by this because I saw in Alvin Plantinga, who, in my opinion, is uh, in a modern day Christian thinker of a, of a completely different level. Um, I've tried to get him on this show, actually. Uh, I, he, he says that he he doesn't do these types of things anymore. If you know him personally. You go talk to your boy, Alvin, and, and, and get him on the show. It would be an experience of a lifetime for this guy. But anyway, uh, he, he, I see in him, I see in this defense, something well thought out, something different, not just a, a pithy quote, not just a pithy argument. Th- those arguments are great, but ultimately this foundational understanding of who God is and, and, and what he does and what it is that he could be doing in this world radically changed how I saw not just God and evil, but also even just my own relationship with him. But that, that brings us to our second topic today. Right now, uh, as I record this show, in the nation of India, there is a festival going on called Ganesh Chaturthi. And, and I want to just dovetail from a discussion of the problem of evil and, and bring us east. Bring us into a little bit of Hinduism. And, and if you're not really a Hindu fanatic, uh, a, a Hindu scholar, uh, maybe you're not passionate about the study of world, world religions, be patient. I want to introduce you to something that you've probably never heard, um, but then also l- finish our time with a, with a discussion of the character of God versus the character of other gods, especially in light of the problem of evil. Um, and I want to do this by telling you about a guy named Ganesh. 
Well, not a guy, an elephant headed God within Hinduism. See, for the last two years, I've traveled to India during the celebration of the Hindu God Ganesh. This festival, like I said, is called Ganesh Chaturthi, and it is one of the largest celebrations all year in India. Uh, and, and I don't think I need to tell anybody who's listening to this show, but if you're unfamiliar, celebrations in India are never small. I mean, they are humongous. In fact, a Hindu friend of mine asked me one time uh, why Christians don't don't celebrate their holidays. And of course, I scoffed. I said, are you kidding me? We celebrate holidays. We celebrate Easter. We celebrate Christmas. And he said, no, Christians observe their holidays. Hindus celebrate them. And I was hugely convicted by that because I've seen Hindu festivals and Hindu celebrations, and they really are a party. And it, and it makes me wonder why Christians don't necessarily, uh, at least Western Christians, don't necessarily uh, throw quite a party for the birth of Christ as these, these Hindus do for this Ganesh festival. Um, but the festival is an amazing sight to take in as devotees gather around Ganesh idols, some as high as 30 to 50 feet tall, which is huge, 30 to 50 feet, some of them. Um, and everybody on, in, on, on a block is going to pool their money together and, and each block is going to buy the biggest Ganesh idol that they can afford. It turns into a little bit of a competition in the area. Um, and it turns into a, over a week of devotion and prayer to Ganesh, who is known as the remover of obstacles. So during my first visit, I was shocked at how important Ganesh was in the lives of many of these Hindus. Uh, because if you, if you study Hinduism, which, which I have, you're going to learn that there's thousands and thousands of gods, but then there's a few that are just especially important. Um, gods like Brahma, gods like uh, Vishnu and uh, Shiva. And when you learn Hinduism from a textbook, you don't really learn much about Ganesh. Um, but when you go to India, you learn that Ganesh is maybe the most popular god and certainly one of the most important in the lives of the everyday Hindu. Um, it's said that Ganesh was, uh, was his origin story. Um, this is something interesting to, to Westerners too, because we're used to, um, preexistent notions of God. Um, but in Hinduism, they don't seem to demand that same thing, right? Because the Ganesh origin story is essentially that he came from two other gods, Shiva and Parvati. Parvati, his mother created him, um, out of dirt and, uh, cause she was lonely and she placed him as a guard at her door. And when Shiva, his sort of father came back, didn't know who he was because his wife had created him out of dirt, cut off his head. And when he realized what he had done and his wife was super upset, he went and got the head of the first creature he saw to replace the head that he had cut off, which of course was the head of an elephant. So there's his origin story. But, but what I want to share with you is something interesting about the, the background of Ganesh. And it's essentially that Ganesh might not have come from that story or, or anything like it at all. In fact, there's a lot of research that says that uh, dating to uh, predating any mention of Ganesh in Hindu literature, there is an elephant headed God in China, in uh, Buddhist texts and Buddhist worship. And this elephant headed God that predates Ganesh was actually um, a, what's called a Vinyaka or hinderer. A Vinyaka in these Buddhist uh, religious Chinese communities were seen as evil spirits who took every opportunity to upset the progression of human life towards enlightenment. Remember that in Buddhism, if you haven't listened to the Buddhist episode of All Things All People podcast, make sure you go do that after you're done with this one. But if you don't already know, uh, the, the, the goal of Buddhism is enlightenment. And these vinyakas, these hinderers, it seems as if their, their goal is to hinder 
the progression towards enlightenment. Uh, in, in Western um, Christianity, we would, we would, of course, call these demons. So it's interesting that a deity like Ganesh that is now seen as a remover of obstacles might have been first seen as one who hindered and brought about obstacles in the lives of the devoted. In fact, the word Vinayaka is still used today for Ganesh, but instead of hinderer, it means supreme head, indicating just how drastically popular the view of Ganesh has changed. And so uh, we look back at the history of Ganesh and we see that, that uh, his history is murky. But today, as I said, a visit to India will be all that is necessary to understand Ganesh's current place in the lives of Hindu devotees. He is, in fact, in my opinion, the most popular deity in the Hindu pantheon. And because of his place as the remover of obstacles, no new venture, whether it be a new home, a new business. Um, in fact, if you go into a Hindu temple and you, you uh, observe the priests, the priest will always offer a puja or prayer offering to Ganesh first, even if they're not necessarily a Ganesh devotee. Why? Because Ganesh is seen to remove obstacles when he is worshipped. So whether because of the mythology surrounding him as the ultimate supreme God or because of his place as one who can bring prosperity, Ganesh is usually the first idol brought into a home, like I said, worshipped in a temple. Ganesh even has children's books depicting the stories of his life and how he was involved in the, the, the writing of famous Hindu epics. Now, all of this, of course, is brought into question by the fact that we don't see Ganesh showing up in India until around uh, six, the 6th century AD. And, and before he arrives in India, we see questionable figures that of similar nature to Ganesh in other religious areas. But yet here we are, as I said, celebrating Ganesh at the Ganesh Chaturthi in India, at the culmination of Ganesh Chaturthi, Ganesh idols from all over these neighborhoods, these 30 to 50 foot tall idols are immersed, are thrown into local bodies of water. This is to signify Ganesh's return to Mount Kailash in Tibet, where his parents, Shiva and Pravati still live. During this ritual ceremony, the crowds gather around the idols and yell out their hope to Ganesh that he would return to their homes and neighborhoods again the next year. This ultimately signifies the true significance Ganesh holds in the lives of many Hindus. Their hope that Ganesh will bring hope and peace to their lives by removing the many obstacles they face each day, by welcoming him into their homes and neighborhoods, they hope to have been blessed by his presence. So it's, it's ultimately uh, a sad story. It's a sad story of people trying to please a God. It's an old story. It's, it's one that happens in thousands, if not millions, if not billions of ways each and every day. But the one with Ganesh is the one I'm talking about today, because in light of a question like the problem of evil, I want us to reflect on the characters uh, the character of the gods that we worship. Because it's interesting to me, uh, after seeing the research into Ganesh's undesirable past, the question must be asked if millions of Hindus are being led astray into the worship of an idol that at best is not who they think he is. And at worst, a God that at one point was the one who brings hindrances and is now the one who removes hindrances. Even more, what's the difference? 
If a God who removes hindrances brings about problems in a person's life due to a lack of devotion, does that God not become the bringer of obstacles now? I, I, I want you to reflect on that and ask yourself, why do I worship the God that I worship? If it's because he deserves worship, such as the case in Christianity, at least a, a genuine Christianity, then we don't worship, we don't offer prayers, we don't offer devotion in hopes that God would spare us some sort of punishment. We worship him because he deserves it. And this is the difference between a vengeance-driven God and a justice-driven God. A vengeance-driven God being something like Ganesh and a justice-driven God being something like Yahweh. Because ultimately, in light of the problem of evil, the crass non-pastoral question, or the, the crass non-pastoral answer is that bad things happen to everyone, whether you worship God or not. This is a result of the fall. Religions that promise easier lives for the cost of sacrifice and devotion to a particular God are taking advantage of human suffering. See, Ganesh is heralded as the remover of obstacles, yet if one does not appropriately pay homage to him, he will actually bring obstacles to you. Therefore, the puja or prayer, Hindu sacrifice, is actually just nothing more than a payoff. The world of religion is filled with gods like this. Yahweh is different, though. While there are certainly accounts all through the Bible of bad things happening to people who scorn Yahweh, this isn't petty revenge, such as the case of Ganesh or many other gods all over the world in the history of religion. See, Yahweh is wrapped up in the idea of holiness and justice. It's wrapped up into the idea of who is he and who am I? And that is why, in light of things like the problem of evil, I want to encourage Christians as they try their best to answer. Do not just come up with answers that seem to end in argument, but do your best to show believers and non-believers alike the character of our God, the character of a justice-driven God, a God who is so holy and righteous and perfect that of course in the light of actually meeting him we would choose goodness over evil that everything other than him is in itself evil and while we should certainly try our best to come up with the most philosophical pastoral ministerial answers to these difficult questions we should do everything we possibly can to make sure to share the gospel which includes the only god who is not petty to seek vengeance but instead seek justice see justice is the completion of a work the ju justice is the making whole of something broken so we serve the only God who is not petty to seek vengeance, but instead seeks justice through the completion of justice through Jesus's death on a cross. And so the problem of evil is so much more than chess moves, than making sure that we have the right answers. And it, and, and it starts with things like planning us free will defense by beginning to become a little bit more well-versed in philosophy and theology and apologetics, but also understanding that, that we need to do our best to introduce our Hindu friends, our, our Muslim friends, our atheist friends to a God whose character is so wrapped up in holiness and justice and not pettiness and vengeance. I think most people think 
instead that we serve a God who's going to strike us with lightning if we don't take communion the right way. But that's just not true. He's so wrapped up in his own goodness because he is the only one who is good. And so I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your thoughts on the problem of evil, on Alvin Plantinga, on Ganesh, on Tatorti. If you're Hindu and you made it this far in the podcast, I want to hear from you. Reach out to me with your questions about Christianity. I'll do my best uh, to engage with you. I, I, I spend a lot of time with Hindus and Muslims, and uh, I'd love to make more Hindu and Muslim friends through the show. So reach out to me on Instagram at allthings.allpeople, or hit me up on email at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. Uh, no matter what religious faith you are, especially if you're Christian, make sure that you reach out with me. Um, reach out to me for, with questions for future episodes. Um, and uh, review and share the show. Check out the sticker team. Uh, you can find the link in my bio on Instagram and in the show notes here. And remember, before we finish up, you don't have to be-